For part one of our sixth interview, Dr. Rebecca Flick chats with Dr. Grace Janik. Sit back, grab a cup of coffee, and enjoy what we think are valuable lessons about our history, sparking innovation, and newer surgical applications of reproductive surgery. All right. Um, so welcome, Dr. Grace Janik. We are so excited to be interviewing you today for the Surgical Legends podcast um, for the Society of Reproductive Surgery. Um, so as probably everyone knows, um, Dr. Janik has had a foundational role in the surgical history of our field um, and continues to be a very active contributor. So right now, um, she's the REI Director of Reproductive Specialty Center at Columbia St. Mary's. Um, she holds the title of Clinical Professor, and she has had every possible hat in her long and storied history within the field of REI surgery. Um, she's been on um, many committees um, and has really shaped a lot of what we see as current REI surgical practice. Um, and very recently in her role training the next generation of reproductive surgeons, um, she's been the um, associate residency program director and had many other educational roles. Um, and so for those of you that I don't know, Rebecca Flick, I'm division director of reproductive endocrinology at University Hospitals in Cleveland. And I'm actually here um, with my fellow, Dr. Katie Coyne, who's a first year fellow in reproductive endocrinology and infertility. Katie, do you wanna introduce yourself? Hi, yes, I'm Katie Coyne. I'm the first year fellow at University Hospitals and I'm very excited to get this opportunity to chat with Dr. Janet. And I just have to say, I think it's just incredibly cool to have three generations of female surgeons here in a room talking together. Um, I, I saw Dr. Janik talk um, probably over 15 years ago, and she was a huge inspiration to me. And I've learned so much from watching her videos, um, reading her publications and book chapters. And now I, I, I'm excited to pay it forward um, with some of the fellows in our current program, including Katie. Um, so um, we'll start off just by taking a look at this incredible set of pictures um, that Dr. Janik provided, uh, showing her history as a reproductive surgeon as she moved along in her career. Dr. Janik, do you want to talk us through some of the pictures that we're seeing here? Sure. Um, one of the pictures is, oh, they, they all are so meaningful, but there's one picture with the Joneses. Um, and that was my first international lecture I gave in Kyoto, Japan. And I was so, so excited. I was getting ready to give a lecture on tubal reanastomosis and they walk in together and sit in the front row to my lecture. And I was, oh, I wow. was overwhelmed. <laughs> when I was in medical school, I had the picture of them on the front of Time Magazine holding two babies up above my desk because <laughs> I thought... Georgiana Jones was just the coolest person in the world. There were so few women in medicine. She was one of my idols. So to have her at my first lecture was incredible. Yeah, your heart must have just stopped. I can't oh, even yeah. imagine giving a talk in front of the Joneses. <laughs> and yeah. then what's here at the top left here? I see a, a picture of you looking maybe just from yesterday. Um, <laughs> offering. No. <laughs> From long ago, but uh, uh, yeah, that was just a picture in the OR, and they—I don't know why it was taken. Somebody wanted a picture operating, and that's with my partner Charles Cole that we worked together for many years. 
And a lot of the very innovative things that were done in the 90s, we did together. So we were really a good team kind of pushing each other on, irritating each other at the same time, but inspiring each other. So it was a very good synergy. It was at a time when laparoscopy was so very new. I mean, we didn't even have suction irrigation. So video cameras just came online. And it was right after I finished my fellowship that I joined him and we started doing these inventions really um, in room 11. And they just thought of us as the crazy people in room 11. They really didn't know what we were doing in there, but luckily it was an easier time in medicine to be more innovative and nothing bad happened. So they gave us a lot of freedom to test new equipment, do new procedures. So it was really an awesome growth phase on those yeah. early days. And, and what was that innovative process like for you or like for the two of you in those days? Like, how did you dream up some of those ideas? Well, really, it started in fellowship because my chair was Anthony Scamania, Tony Scamania, and he was such an inventive, brilliant person. He in, did inventions with the, the hysteroscopy pump, hysteroscopy, um, loaded IUDs, hormone-loaded IUDs. And he just taught me how to think, how to be creative. And he, we would walk room to room and other surgeons like orthopedics, urology, and get ideas. And he would say, what do you think of that? What do you think of that? And he, so he taught me how to think. And then I had had a fair amount of microsurgery experience in residency because no one wanted to do those microsurgery cases. They hated them, but I loved them. And so it was an easy transition to laparoscopy. And Dr. Scamania let me essentially test all the new laparoscopy equipment, do procedures laparoscopically. And he would just sit in the corner and he said, I will just critique you. You're better at this. So he gave me a lot of freedom as a fellow to really expand my passion at the time. I, I just came on fire with laparoscopy during that time because it was so much better for the patients, the outcomes were so much better. And I, I just became convinced that this is how we have to operate. I mean, I feel like now we partner so closely with uh, industry as we think about developing new techniques and new devices. Was it the same back then? No, not so much. We would test things from industry, but one of the early inventions was tubal reanastomosis. And there were no small instruments. So what we did is we used ENT instruments. Wow. And we put them down through the ports. And we first practiced on rabbits, the big white rabbits. <laughs> yeah. To get this microsuturing down with ADO and get the instrumentation. And then we used these ENT instruments to do the first reanastomosis. Wow. And from there, then we partnered with industry, with Storts, to make microsurgical equipment. Yeah. So... So the ideas of what to do kind of started from inside of us and then out to industry. I mean, certainly tubal reanastomosis was the surgery that made me fall in love with REI surgery. Um, and I think it's really interesting to see that there's been kind of a resurgence in tubal reanastomosis surgeries, I think, as people um, look to alternatives for IVF. We would love to know just a little bit about you, your background, your family, and what got you into medicine to start off. Well, 
my father was a dentist and he wanted me to be a dentist too. And I worked in his office a little bit, but I just didn't find it that stimulating. So I wanted to, but I really liked medicine. So I wanted to go to medical school and he was very encouraging. He was first generation uh, from Czechoslovakia, very much into education. And so he, he was very supportive. Um, and my mom, an artist. So luckily I got some good genetic throw from a technical perspective yeah. and going through school, did a lot of uh, tailoring as a, a job. So, and then, yeah, so that was my inspiration to go into medicine and it happened pretty early. And then the early bond to go into REI came from both wanting to do something surgical and a real strong interest in endocrine and Georgiana Jones, I would say those were the three things that pulled me in that direction. That's great. Yeah, what an inspiration. I, I can certainly see in what we do elements of both art and dentistry. <laughs> um, just, I mean, there's sort of a meticulousness to the surgery that we do, but also the reconstruction and the preservation. I mean, that has a very artistic flavor. I think so. I think of surgery as art and doing it well. I think you have to be creative in certain circumstances of how to make it all come together. And not every problem is identical. Yeah. Was reproductive surgery always your passion or was there something along the way that you considered as an alternative? Oh, I thought about plastics a little bit, but I really liked endocrine also. And I took a year off to do research. I tried to get into the endocrine lab, but they were full. So I did it in cardiovascular research, but it gave me some research skills anyway. So early endocrine interest in addition. And I liked working with women. And I also liked um, congenital malformations and, and that whole early development stage. So it just pulled everything together that I was interested in. Dr. Janik, if you had to sort of put a number to it, I mean, how, how long have you been working in reproductive surgery? Well, I, I did, I really started kind of third year in residency doing all those reversals, then fellowship was heavy surgery. So, so that really all started in 87. So 87 till now. Yeah. And, and how long did you feel like it took you to hit your stride? I mean, I feel like I work with so many trainees and, you know, sometimes they get frustrated that it's not coming together as fast as they want. And I always say to them what my mentor said to me, which is like, well, do it a few thousand times. <laughs> you, well, know? you do have to do it a lot. You have to be very committed to, to it. It doesn't come easily. As, um, so I would say, well, it's tricky because during this time is also when technology was evolving so quickly. So the change in technology escalated as well as the experience. Now technology is a little more plateaued. So now it's more number of cases, but I would say it was a good five years, seven years before I was like really super proficient. Yeah. It sounds weird and to say, but the level that it's kind of that plateau level. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I would say that's kind of where I started to feel like I had hit my stride, um, you know, in fellowship and as an attending, I mean, it, it takes years. And I think, um, you know, what we do is so sub sub specialized. 
I guess one of the things I was curious about thinking about those earlier days of laparoscopy is what, what were the particular challenges or any particular stories you remember that you had to troubleshoot or problem solve before we had all of these incredible technologies we have now? Oh, there were always issues, visual issues. And like I said, using ENT instruments. Um, so instrumentation was a little tricky. Re also the environment. I mean, where I worked because it was a, a private hospital, I had a lot more freedom, but the academic center was very negative about laparoscopy. It was, in those huh. early days, it was not, not in academic centers at all. And they'd be critical and say minimal access, minimal surgery, mm. um, very um, not supportive for, I'd say a good 10 years that it was unacceptable kind of heretic surgery to do such a thing. Wow. And even, even with presenting the tubal reanastomosis work, we won first prize and I think it was 91 for the work, but then the next year, we were in a debate and they called us cowboy surgeons and this is unacceptable. So there was a lot of not uh, positive in the early days. It's so interesting, especially from an academic center. I mean, we look at the environment we operate now and it's sort of like someone will slap your hand if you do a laparotomy. <laughs> yeah, I know it's changed so much, which is good. I mean, it's as it should be, but the early days were not easy. You were definitely a maverick. You were looked at like you were doing odd things. Um, and how did you convince them? Um, slowly, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I was so personally convinced. I could see how much better it was for the patients, both the recovery and it, and then starting seeing second looks, how much better the pelvis looked. I was absolutely passionately convinced that this was better for patients. And it was just a matter of educating other people, which is why I started teaching it really early. So even in fellowship, I started teaching other places because I just felt so passionate about it. It was never my intention to do all these things. It, it was more just that I caught fire with it. And then even started teaching general surgeons. General surgeons weren't doing laparoscopy at this stage. So I started teaching cholecystectomy courses in the early days. Isn't that, that crazy? That is amazing. I know. And then, um, and then it changed, then it changed. And then I remember teaching some suturing courses and at the medical college, I was teaching one to some general surgeons and I'm like, this is really good. We'll take this and we'll publish it for you. I'm like, no, no, that's no. <laughs> we got it. <laughs> then the shift began. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, I'm sure they had a lot to learn from you. I, I love watching your surgical videos. And I, and I mean, I, there are so many things that I know that you do, but um, you know, when I, when I've watched you operate the handling of the ovary and the tubes, I mean, I feel like there's so much to learn there. Would you say that that was your area of biggest passion or do you feel like all of it was exciting to you from the beginning? Well, it was really how to incorporate microsurgical techniques into laparoscopy that so naturally fit together mm -hmm. that that was the passion. It was, it was better for the patients, better outcome. And then it just evolved. So the next evolution was educating other people. And then with that evolution of education was starting the fellowship, the minimally invasive fellowship. So I was on the founding board of that. Now this is in 2001 is how to spread the word out. 
And that was a big plus. It was a plus for AGL to get younger people involved. And it also was a plus for minimally invasive surgery in general to spread it. And really from my perspective, try to get it to more limited number of people doing it. Because I think it's really hard as a general OBGYN if you're doing something very infrequently to maintain a skill set. Not yeah. that you couldn't have the skill set, but it's just the nature of OBGYN. Now you just don't have the volume of cases. Yeah. Well, and I think sadly for a time, although I, I hope that that's changing, you know, that happened within REI where there just weren't the surgical volumes or the practice setups that support having an active surgical practice for us to maintain that really high level of expertise. Do you think that um, this is shifting backwards now to kind of put some of the specialized surgeries that we do back in the hands of reproductive surgeons? I think it should be. And that's very much what my focus now is, if I can make any change would be in that direction. Because when we started MIS, it also included slings and, and all specialties, because none of the subspecialists were really doing minimally invasive surgery. But now all the other subspecialists have really adopted it, except REI is the, the slowest. Yeah. And an MIS trained fellow, they're good at hysterectomies, they're good at things, but they're not reproductive surgeons. It's not equal. Yeah. Um, how to balance when surgery should be done versus other forms of treatment. Microsurgical technique is not really taught in MIS. So it's, it's a gap. It's a huge gap. So either MIS needs to do an extra year in reproductive surgery or REIs need to make sure it's incorporated in their fellowships or do an extra year is really what I think needs to happen to get truly reproductive surgeons out there. I feel like it, we need more and we need more training in that direction. Well, and that's why we're, I mean, Katie is one of the inaugural fellows of our surgical scholars track offered by the SRS within the ASRM fellowship and, um, or the REI fellowship. And um, basically what we've been able to do is devote, you know, both across the fellowship and during her six months of elective time, you know, she can operate full time with us, but if she wants to, she can also go with other disciplines, you know, and operate with GYN oncology or MIGS, you know, to really broaden her skill set. Um, and I think, you know, this, this trend towards this scholars track has been really well received. And the hope is that within every training program, we can start to have some budding uh, surgical scholars to, to carry on your legacy and the legacy of so many others who, you know, have really prioritized this. I think it's very important. I see many patients who would have benefited from surgery much earlier on that get pushed into IVF or surgery that wasn't adequately done. And it's really sad because it, it could change their lives incredibly. And we just need to get more people trained and understanding what needs to be done. So I think it's, it's definitely the next wave. <laughs>